Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, speaking to you from Toronto in what I hope is now my mostly normal, non-raspy, pre-COVID voice. Now, normally, I don't like talking too much about Twitter on this show. I mean, many of us think about Twitter way too much as it is. But with Elon Musk buying Twitter and lots of people either freaking out about it or rubbing their hands with glee, there's no avoiding this kind of Twitter-centric discussion. And I'm very fortunate to have with me as a guest someone who probably knows more about online free speech and content moderation than anyone I know. His name is Jim Rutt, a big thinker and veteran American entrepreneur who's been fascinated and involved with online communities since the days of Ronald Reagan. And I'm talking Ronald Reagan's first term, which began in 1980. We're talking Miracle on Ice, the very first CNN broadcast, the assassination of John Lennon, the eruption of Mount St. Helens. While all that stuff was happening, Jim Rutt was settling arguments online. Now, I need scarcely tell you that these were the days before Twitter, and Facebook, and even Friendster, MySpace, and the World Wide Web itself. In our conversation, Rutt tells me about online services I've never even heard of. For four decades, Rutt has been setting and implementing content moderation policies at all of these platforms, and as a result, he's learned the hard way about what kind of speech can be allowed and what can't. Last month, he wrote a widely read article for the Quillette website called Musk and Moderation, in which he described what the Tesla and SpaceX billionaire should do to maximize free speech for Twitter users while avoiding the, quote, dumpster fire that Rutt always observes when all controls are abandoned. He also outlines a complicated arbitrage system that Twitter users could conceivably use to get their dispute settled by external arbitrators, which I'm not really sold on, but which is interesting and which Mr. Rutt will describe on the show. And just so you know, my guest spoke to me from the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia, where the internet bandwidth may not be as high as in some other places, which I mentioned just in case you're wondering about the slightly less than perfect audio quality. In your article for Quillette, you talk about being a, a power user in every generation of online community platforms from 1981 to today. I actually have some memory of this because I had an early CompuServe account, but can you describe for me what being a power user meant in 1981? I got exposed to the online world actually in 1980 uh, when I went to work for a company called The Source, uh, which actually existed before CompuServe. And the first round of the online wars was CompuServe versus The Source. And it was there that I started using many-to-many -many communications, uh, forum systems at that time, which we called POST. Uh, and I was a user there. And then I had a very good experience of being the product manager and the designer of the second generation. I literally sat side by side with the software developer and uh, conceptualized and guided the development of 
the forum system uh, that we then deployed in 1981. And I was, as the product manager, I was also the moderator. And in those days, we were maybe not so smart. We didn't necessarily separate the roles. So in addition to being the moderator, I also participated as a principal. So uh, I was sort of, you know, hands-on up to my elbows in uh, doing many-to-many communications in 1981. Uh, in 1982, we created a precursor social media called Participate. Uh, actually, a third party brought it to us, and we hosted it in our system. And uh, I was involved with moderation there as well. Uh, and then when I left the source in 82, I transferred my flag to CompuServe as a user, though not as, not as an employer. was quite active there. Did the same at Genie later, Prodigy for a while, AOL. Uh, all this is pre-internet. Uh, then I moved my online home to The Well in 1989. Uh, that was before it was on the internet, actually. You had to dial into it. Went on the internet in the early 90s and uh, became quite the thing in the very early internet epoch. And I'm still a member of The Well to this day. And about uh, 10 years ago, the owner of The Well, which by that point was Salon, which was this uh, online news slash opinion site they were going to shut it down because it was too small to be worth their while and so 11 of us users stepped up and bought it and i'm still a member of that that ownership group and as the owner obviously uh, i've had to immerse myself in the business issues uh, around moderation and uh, sometimes the uh, conversations get ugly and moderation has been uh, a very key concept in that business, uh, I was an early user of Facebook, moderator of two fairly large Facebook groups to this day. I'm also the uh, founder and lead admin on a private uh, network for the Game B community at game-b.org, where we have thousands of users. Again, moderation is uh, key to that. So that's that's kind of my tale of you know having been involved with uh, the evolution of online community since literally the beginning. Wow, you're like a, a lifelong social media moderation addict. Tell me about participate. I'd never heard of that. Yeah, nobody's ever heard of that. Came and went. It was you know it was very interesting. It was a tree structure and. Well, someone wanted to start a new conversation. They had to branch off an existing conversation, but they could rename it. But that's so, that kind of still exists in some form, this branch. I mean, you see in Reddit, yeah, this yeah. thing where you could rename it like Joe is stupid and Joe is wrong and let's discuss why. Exactly. <laughs> Give a new name to the branch, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the branch. So the branch, and then, and then it would actually show where it came from. You could backtrack. Uh, again, this was the first foray. Uh, the other interesting thing is that the designer uh, had two switches on it. One, you could allow anonymous users and one where the users were not anonymous and where you knew where they were. Uh, and he strongly believed in anonymity. And we, the product managers, said, this is a bad idea. And so we set up two, one with real names and one with anonymity. Uh, both produced a lot of moderation issues, but the the anonymous one became a ridiculous dumpster fire, and we closed it down in a few weeks. <laughs> uh, and so that was my first first learning. Anonymity leads to shit. <laughs> that, was, that would have been 1982. So uh, I think that I think that learning still applies today. So I I thought you were going to talk a little bit about these listservs and these sort of Unix based stuff, which I, I dabbled in a little bit, I guess, in the late 80s and early 90s. Although I don't think that qualifies as social media, but I do remember that uh, we called them Playmores. Oh, yeah. I was involved in that, too. I was on Usenet. I was on various bulletin boards. But, is but... That, does Usenet qualify? I don't think it qualifies as social media, does it? Not exactly. But it, it, it's, it's uh, very similar to 
uh, a, a Google group or a forum. Interesting, logically, all of them are about the same thing. So depends what, what, what you mean by social, but yeah, they're part of the lineage, though they're not what I would call directly uh, the same thing as, uh, as today's social media. But they're close. Have you seen any evolution in humanity's ability to use these technologies in an unmoderated way without falling very quickly into stupid arguments? Short answer, no. Uh, I have seen, though, the ability of relatively large groups to operate with very soft moderation. Um, for instance, our Game B group, which has something more than 2,000 users in it, it's pretty active. Uh, in a year and a half, we've never had to boot a user. We've never had to take any content down. And we only have 10 rules. Uh, on the other hand, we are kind of mission-oriented, reasonably coherent in our uh, personal and public values, and it works pretty well with very light moderation. It probably would not have been possible in 1982. And people did not have any maturity. They're, we were all emotionally 12 years old, and this idea of flinging text at each other was so new. So I would say there has been a there has been some social learning that has enabled small coherent groups to operate with minimal but not zero moderation. On the other hand, that social learning does not apply to open public square venues where the stuff still goes to hell pretty quickly. You talk in broad strokes about the distinction between decorum-based moderation and content-based moderation. So, uh, you know, example of decorum-based moderation would be like, it's not a question of content, it's just the person is behaving in a harassing or antisocial or, or threatening manner. And then content would be where you're proposing an idea, and, and the idea is seen as out of bounds. When I went to law school, when we were talking about the First Amendment, we would talk about the distinction between time, place, and manner restrictions and content-based restrictions. So time, place, and manner would be, you know, you can have your weird parade, but you can't have it at three in the morning and you can't have a marching band and go through a residential neighborhood and do it. Content would be, you can't have a parade if you're Nazis or you're communists or something like that. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Time and place are not actually relevant in the distinction I made in the essay, though they can be in another dimension uh, where you have things like, say, uh, Reddit, where the world is divided up into subreddits, right. uh, each one that has its host and each one that has a topic. Uh, a Harley Davidson subreddit will ban the discussion of Japanese motorcycles on principle, and that's is that true? Yep, that's true. And that's wait a, a say, whoa, 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 this is too weird for me to. So, like, if you're talking about a Honda, it would be like HXXXA, or would that get you? No, they to... would just say, "Don't talk about that here. Go talk. <laughs> okay. Go to the rice burner forums. God damn it!" Uh, and uh, as an example, and that, that would be a place based. You know, it's not appropriate to talk about Japanese motorcycles on the Harley subreddit. Time, I don't think is relevant, but manner, manner is what would uh, be equal to my decorum. You know, in the same sense, no marching band going through a, a neighborhood. Uh, so that would be decorum and, you know, things like personal attacks, racial slurs. Uh, one could have a site that had no obscene language allowed. You could be a crackpot and say no semicolons. That would be decorum because it's not about content. Uh, when I talk about content, I actually divide it into two pieces. One is inherently dangerous content, how to make a bomb, how to make poison, you know, how to commit suicide. And then the third bucket is the one I believe uh, Elon's most concerned about, but he doesn't know it because he hasn't thought about the problem enough, is a point of view. And this is where it's about the substance of what you're trying to say, not how you say it. 
Uh, decorum is how you say it, basically. Uh, and then there's this narrow bucket of inherently dangerous stuff. And then there's the much bigger bucket of viewpoint. And my argument is Twitter should probably turn the knob towards more decorum uh, moderation than it has today. It should come up to some principled and narrow and clear ideas about de inherently dangerous content. And it should be relatively wide open with point of view. The last, I believe, is what Elon's trying to attempt. Uh, but I don't think he's thought about the fact that he needs particularly the decorum based uh, moderation. And to give you an example, what happens if you don't have decorum? I mean, uh, I'm a little bit uh, concerned about where uh, uh, Musk's head is at it with respect to this. He recently put out a tweet after I'd finished the essay where he said, anything that is legal should be able to be said. Anything else is censorship. You know, what does he mean by that? Censorship actually refers to government action, not private actor action. And so he may be just a little confused there, but he had no decorum rules at all. Let me give you an example. Uh, a black person and a white person could be having a heated discussion about a movie and the white person could say F you and then use the N word and not the euphemism. That would be legal in the United States. Uh, people could be arguing about sports teams and someone, somebody could get all fired up and say, uh, you know, I hope your house burns down and you and your children die, right? That would be legal in the United States. And if uh, Twitter were only to say, is it legal? They would have to tolerate that kind of behavior. And I can tell you from 41 years of experience, uh, you're going to have dumpsters fire right quick. And that decorum rules do not hurt the substantive conversation. The Beatles managed to say some revolutionary stuff without ever saying fuck. Uh, Shakespeare used the F word a couple of times and, uh, and such, but the Beatles never did. And so I take that as a point that you can say very revolutionary things and be highly decorous. More decorum is in general good, but viewpoint moderation should be done only at the very, very, very extreme. In the viewpoint range, I am close to, but not quite a free speech absolutist. But I think this is a very huge, important distinction to make. People go on the internet and they say, I'm for free speech, no moderation. They forget about decorum moderation that truthfully you cannot operate without it. But um, isn't there some blurring of the line between what counts as decorum and what counts as content? If you have a rule that says, as a matter of decorum, we don't permit misgendering. So if somebody identifies as a woman and you use a masculine pronoun to address them, that can be described as a breach of decorum, saying, well, you can say whatever you want, but you have to use the correct pronoun because otherwise it's like using the N-word. On the other hand, somebody would say, well, actually, that's a viewpoint-based rule because the idea that a person can switch from he to she by saying so or demanding to be recognized as such that's actually, at least implicitly, you're offering a view on how human beings can change their identity. Life is not simple. Uh, there are no bright lines in ontological space. And there's always going to be difficult questions. And the one you give is, a, I think, an interesting one. My take would be the following, and I would not say this is definitive, but uh, if one had a decorum rule that said, thou shalt not misgender, uh, then that rule should be enforced. However, what should not 
ever be sanctioned is someone arguing about the rule or saying the rule is uh, foolish or stupid or uh, incongruent with human nature and biology and uh, et cetera. You know, this is very much like in, in uh, universities. Some of them have what they call diversity, equity, and uh, inclusion rules. And in some places, if you even criticize the rule, you can be kicked out. But nonetheless, until that rule is changed, you have to obey it. Every site should tailor its decorum rules to the audience it wants to attract. The example I gave in the, in the essay was uh, if you and your friends are talking about your most uh, recent dating debacle, you might use very vivid and graphic uh, language to describe it. If you allude to it at all at your grandmother's Sunday dinner table, you would be very euphemistic and very vague. And those are two different sites. When you talk about Twitter, Twitter is your grandmother's table and it is your friend's locker room chat session. It's it's everything rolled into one because unless you're dealing with protected or blocked accounts, everyone's kind of in the same room. That's exactly right, which is, which is a challenge. It's not like, like Reddit where you have 200,000 separate subreddits. Each one, by the way, has their own rules. There's a master set of rules. I've also uh, mod subreddits as well. You're an addict, I tell you. This is your absolute lifelong moderation. You know, actually, I'm more of a posting addict, and I have to do moderation as my civic duty to keep the world from collapsing. But uh, you're right, and, and that's why Twitter is a specific, probably the hardest of all the cases, in that you have to have a rule one rule to rule them all, you know, uh, and that just makes the job hard. Uh, and I would argue it's neither uh, your drinking buddies talking about your uh, debacles in your dating life, nor your grandmother's dinner table. It's somewhere in between. And uh, it will be a pragmatic decision what the decorum rules ought to be for Twitter. There is no... Uh, dictionary you can go to which says this is the kind of rules you should have you're going to have to think it through have to take an empirical approach uh, especially for twitter more so than any other system uh, it's going to be a big task but it's a doable task by the way before we proceed further you mentioned that you had this i think 10 point list of rules that you had for, was it the well? No, it was for our Game B home, game-b.org. Uh, we developed those rules over on Facebook when we mostly live there. And when we started our own, when we got into a fight with Facebook, uh, we formalized them and posted them and they've been amazingly successful. Would you be able to send them to me and we will post them on the episode page for this podcast? Happy to do it. I mean, I know you're not calling them commandments, but there are- Actually, I do. There, you, as you will see, the top of the document actually shows Moses's stone tablets. And we, I, we don't call them comm wow. commandments. We, we put that up there as a kind of uh, soft uh, and somewhat ironic, because you know, as you see when you're, they're reading, they're not written like commandments. They're much softer. But yeah, it, it, the document actually has the, uh, the stone tablets up there as part of our uh, part of our shtick yeah happy to send it to you for those who are listening quillette.com go to the podcast sub page and uh you'll be destroying your your golden calves and uh idols as soon as you read these <laughs> we're 20 minutes in and people are wondering hey when are you going to start talking about elon musk and i promise we will but you have so much fascinating history here. Tell me about the liminal web and what that says about moderation. Uh, I've had some very interesting discussions with people since my essay came out, of course, for years before. Uh, and I've been on a couple of podcasts, which have generated even more ideas. And I'm now convinced that this is actually the essence of the argument for essentially zero viewpoint uh, moderation. And I now call it 
uh, the green sprout hypothesis. And that is that at any given time, there are always a bunch of fringe ideas that a relatively small number of people uh, are interested in and or believe in, uh, and that in general, most of them are bad ideas. Uh, however, a few of them are good. In the same way in biological evolution, if you talk to a uh, evolutionary theorist, I actually happened to talk to one yesterday, he'll tell you that 99.9% .9 of mutations are deleterious. The offspring are, in, are way worse than the parents. However, one in a thousand is actually adds a new important capacity, but if it wasn't for those one in a thousand good mutations, we would still be bacteria. I use a less lofty metaphor for this. I call this the garage band principle because 99% of garage bands are horrible. But if you outlaw garage bands on that basis, you will destroy the future of music. Exactly. So the green, so the green shoots is the same idea. And the liminal web is a group of 20 or 30 small communities of world changers with interesting and sometimes strange ideas. Our game B is considered to be one of them. You know, some of them are talking about very radical ways of redoing human society. Right. Uh, I can see how controversy would ensue. Yeah, even though these are do-gooder for the Game B group, we were targeted by the Facebook algorithm. We believe because it thought we were QAnon, because it was right at the time they were at maximally warring with QAnon. We was only luck that we happened to have some very loud and influential friends. And 12 hours later, Facebook reversed their decision and unban the admins. Uh, but of course, classic Facebook Kafka-esque fashion. They never told us why they banned us and they never even told us that we'd been restored, right? Somebody actually emailed me and said, hey, did you know your ban has been reversed? And I go, nope, let me log on and see what happens. Uh, so uh, yeah, that is that is a hugely important idea. Garage ban, I love that. That's a, a much more accessible metaphor. If you ban garage bands, we ain't never gonna have new music again. And now a message from one of our sponsors, BetterHelp Online Therapy. I don't think I need to tell you that life can be overwhelming, and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment or fatigue. Now, we usually use the word burnout with work, but that's obviously not the only cause. There are plenty of other things in life that can lead us to feel burned out. And BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. I try to take care of my own stress with reading, board gaming, and sports, but I know from experience that self-care can only do so much, and sometimes you need to talk to a professional, which is what BetterHelp is about. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, and you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So give BetterHelp a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. So you say all acts of moderation other than warning should be appealable to a human. So that sounds great. It also sounds like Twitter would then have a workforce bigger than maybe some small countries. I mean, think about all the human beings who would be in the business of saying, yes, you can say that. No, you can't. When people appeal, it would then become this... Um, this sort of leveraged financial transaction where, I'm going to quote this, 
The appeal to human review should take no longer than 24 hours. A second level of appeal should permit a user to stake anywhere between $100 and a million dollars and demand a review by a professional independent arbitrator, that would be a growth industry, to determine whether the specified posts actually violated the reference section of the terms of service. And then if the platform prevails, the user loses the stake. But then if the user prevails, the platform would pay him or her 10 times their stake minus the arbitration fee. Like, this seems really complicated. It's a little bit complicated, but those life, right? You, you read it, and that's exactly the idea, which is a second appeal. Let's say you appeal to the human and they turned you down, but you said, I'm not in violation of term 12.3.4. And it's important to note that earlier in that section, I also say that the rules need to be structured like the criminal statutes uh, where they're hierarchical and that the end leaf nodes be no longer than a hundred words and they be written in plain English. And that uh, whenever there's a, your flag for an infraction, the actual poster posts and the actual hundred word or less section of the, the code is attached to that. Today, uh, especially on Facebook, you'll get, you have violated our terms of service. You go to the terms of service, it's 64 pages of unreadable gobbledygook. It'd be like a policeman arresting you say, you have violated the law, right? Which law? I'm not gonna tell you. So then let's say the human uh, reviewer paid for by Facebook or Twitter uh, disagrees with you. And you then appeal it the second time and say, I'm gonna put up $100, cause it costs about $100 probably uh, to have a professional arbitrator uh, make this call. And if you're wrong, you lose your $100 and it goes to the arbitrator to pay their fee. If you wanted to, you put up more money, put up $1,000. Uh, and if you lose that, the arbitrator gets $100 and Facebook gets $900. But if you win, you get $10,000. Facebook pays 10 times your stake. And you go, whoa, that's interesting. I mean, from a game theory perspective, that means Facebook's got to tune their processes to be correct 90% of the time, which seems to be a tolerable standard, or they're going to lose money on appeals. And then the question comes up, well, $100 is more than a lot of people have or are willing to bet on something like this. So I then add the syndication idea, which is third parties can back your appeal. When I graduated from law school, one of my friends went to a hedge fund. And one of the things he was in charge of investing in was like small firms whose only asset was a cause of action. And his job was to determine the value of the cause of action and say, well, they have a 30% chance of prevailing and they'll make $10 million. So the value is 3 million. You're kind of commodifying internet disputes. Like maybe I can see them maybe being bundled together the way mortgages were. You can see how scam artists would get in on this or maybe even like gin up deliberately people getting banned or moderated so that they could then appeal because they had, they knew that, well, this kind of thing usually gets resolved in the user's favor. So I have a good hunch that that would make a good investment. Like there's all kinds of ways this can go off the rails. Maybe, but it is very similar to the syndication of uh, plaintiff claims, which is legal in some states, right? It's legal, but it's, it's legal, but it's sleazy. Uh, is it? I mean, if you are poor and you cannot afford a lawyer to a first class lawyer uh, to to try your case, uh, is it sleazy to syndicate your claim? Right. So I just want to ask you, like, there's this whole category, and I guess this goes to viewpoint stuff of things that we kind of just sort of know aren't true. Right. Like the whole QAnon mythology, you use um, kind of euphemistic language, you say uh, it's an ideology comprised of of bad ideas that are extremely unlikely to be true. 
extremely unlikely to be true in, in the sense of zero likelihood. Don't ever say zero. I'm an agnostic at heart. Notice I also say in that same bundle, I include uh, Christianity, astrology, and Marxist-Leninism. Yeah. I just want to make the point that right. things that are exceedingly unlikely to be true are in broad circulation in our society. Some of this is arbitrary. Like if you have an ideology that says we have to tear down capitalism, it's like, okay, that's fine. But if you have an ideology that says we have to tear down capitalism, starting with Joe's dry cleaning business on Main Street, that's not okay because even though it's much less ambitious, it's very specific, which is kind of what QAnon is, right? Like it had some weird mythology about some pizzeria where like, I don't know, satanic sex crimes were going on. It's very hard to define what untrue things you're allowed to say by social contract and what untrue things are verboten, again, by unspoken social Well, contract. I have the answer to that. In general, uh, you should not say any point of view perspective is verboten by social contract. Even if I say there's satanic sex rituals going on in some some local business, like I'm a pretty free speech guy, but I'm not crazy about that stuff. Like that, that can lead to violence. Oh, now here's where you'd get them. Libelous claims should be able to be deleted. But it takes years. It takes years in the courts to determine what libel is, though. Of course, you'd have to determine them on the fly. The system could say, saying that John Smith is a pedophile with children chained up is a libelous claim. And unless you have some evidence to support it, we're going to kick it. On the other hand, saying that there's a bunch of Democrats that have children locked up in their basement is obnoxious and stupid as a claim as that is. I think you'd have to let it go. And, and to your communism, fascism thing, I'm willing to state as much as I hate fascism, uh, I also hate Marxist-Leninism, uh, not necessarily academic Marxism. There's some good ideas in academic Marxism, not that I support them in total, but I would allow fascism on the platforms. I'd allow Ku Klux Klansmen on the platform so long as they're decorous and could uh, avoid using racial slurs. That could be a challenge. That might be a challenge. For it might be a challenge, but uh, that would be, if you take seriously the idea of viewpoint neutrality, but constrained by dangerous, explicitly dangerous or criminal things on one hand and decorum on the other, uh, they got to let the chips fall where they may. That's a, a classic liberal view. John Stuart Mill would agree. Karl uh, Popper would agree with one narrow exception. And at the end, there, are, there will have to be exceptions, but they should be narrow and way out on the extreme. Again, I promise we talk a little bit about Elon Musk, although so much of the discussion about him is conjectural. And, and with, with, I think, both sides projecting their hopes and fears on him, like you do see some conservatives who kind of imagine that this is the day we've all been waiting for. It's going to be this sort of free speech, free for all, which probably is not going to happen uh, for reasons that you've outlined. And, and then maybe some on the other side also imagining that that's going to happen, but with a dystopian view toward that kind of thing. How prepared do you think Elon Musk is to make this kind of moderation decision? That's why I wrote the essay, actually, because I suspect that he's not, uh, you know, and uh, so he needs an education. He's a very smart dude and obviously a quick study. But that's dangerous, though. My dad once gave me some good advice. He says the most dangerous company to invest in is the food company that's just been taken over by a guy who made a fortune in the mattress industry. He's been so successful selling mattresses that he thinks he can sell anything. 
your dad's a smart man. I make very similar advice to people. Uh, however, Musk, unlike very many other people, has shown the ability to uh, to master multiple domains. And I do think it's risk, very, very risky for him. Uh, not clear to me. I personally would invest in his endeavor, at least not until I had a chance to talk to him and convince him to make me my, his czar of moderation. <laughs> and I do think there are there are risks. He, he could easily mess up. If he adheres to what he said on Twitter the other day, uh, that is it legal will be the only standard. At least he implied, he didn't quite say he implied it. If he does that dumpster fire, Twitter will die, or at least it will be reduced to a bunch of cranks and haters. Uh, so he's going to have to learn, but he's a very, very smart guy. Does it worry you that he himself has said some pretty wacky things on Twitter? He's a pretty wacky dude, uh, which is one of the things I like about him. I haven't seen him say anything per se, uh, that would violate, uh, you know, they're wacky, they're offensive somewhat. He put up that Bill Gates thing. Remember, it was like a picture of Bill Gates and... That was pretty mean and nasty. Uh, and actually, a way I might get him with the decorum rule, as we do on our Game B list, is personal attacks on other members are prohibited. So if Bill Gates had a Twitter account, then you'd catch him on that rule. If Bill Gates did not have a Twitter account, then you would not. Uh, as just as an example of how decorum can work with content that's on right, the so end. I have a theory on content moderation, which is that the best content moderation policy is the assurance that you're going to see somebody later in real life. Exactly. That's why you have to have very formal ones, is that in real life, you'll get punched in the nose if you say X. But not even punched in the nose. I'm talking about, like, so one of my many disc golf-based Facebook groups, I noticed that in the off-season, it's nasty. But then as soon as our league night starts up and you know you're going to see the guy every Tuesday night, it becomes a lot more polite, not because the guy's going to punch you in the nose, but because no one wants to be in this awkward thing where you just got into some fight with some guy and then you see him. And you might even be, we pair people up for our doubles competition randomly. So, you know, some guy who blocked you, you really want to be on the same team as him. Exactly. It's got skin in the skin in the game consequences. The face-to-face -face world has that. Online does not, right? Some uh, kid sitting in his mother's basement, you know, waxing philosophical on Twitter. I'm never going to meet him ever. And so that's why we need this additional apparatus. Uh, and that's why we did not need it when we all lived in a face-to-face -face world. Because there are other consequences. You have skin in the game. Perfect example, your, uh, your disc golf. Uh, if you're going to have to be on a team with this person that you just insulted his mother online, uh, you're probably not going to insult his mother online. But you, that, that feedback loop does not exist on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is way too big and way too geographically spread out. And face-to-face -face doesn't apply. you got to have a countervailing force, which is decorum moderation. Jim Rutt's article on Quillette is called Musk and Moderation. Mr. Rutt, thanks so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Hey, John, thanks for inviting me. This has been great. You asked some great questions. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.